0: No, ten. Fifteen. Done. Very good. Cheers. Fifteen silver florins. He didn't want that. That's five for William. Five for what? Five for Roland, who's going straight home to England. Straight to the pub for me. Your pie. Brie tart fancy cakes with peppermint cream oh. we could do this do it. we've done it boy that's silver in your hand no, I mean we can do this we can be champions give us your coins well, now come on give me your coins Right right now that's one for you and one for you which leaves 13. that's 13 for training and outfitting now the tournament in rwan is in a month from now in one month we could split a price bigger than this one in one month we could be on our way to glory and riches none of us ever dreamed of in one month, we could be laid in a ditch with Sir Ector. I don't want glory and riches, William. I just want to go home. Tansy cakes with peppermint cream. Dilled veal balls with squash fritters. I'll take my five now. <sighs> oh, wait up. You're going the wrong way. <sighs> but you can't even joust. Well, most of it is the guts to take a blow, to strike one. Guts I have. And technique... I have a month to learn that. Besides, the sword. Name a man better with the sword than I. In the practice ring. You know of noble birth. so we lie. How did the nobles become noble in the first place, huh? They took it at the tip of a sword. I'll do it with a lance. A blunted lance? Oh, no matter what, a man can change his stars. And I won't spend the rest of my life as nothing. That is nothing, and nothing is right where glory will take us. We're the sons of peasants. Glory and riches and stars are beyond our grasp, but a full stomach, that dream can come true. If you can take your coins, go to England, eat cake. But if you can't, you come with me. You see, money doesn't matter. Good morning, gentlemen. In the movie uh, A Knight's Tale, Heath Ledger was a man who understood the importance of dreaming. Remember what he said there on the screen? He said, I believe a man can change his stars. I mean, Ledger's character understood that what you dream today has impact on your tomorrow. Now, last week, I asked you guys to begin dreaming, to dream about the adventures that you felt like God wanted you to have throughout your life. And to help you with that, I gave you a tool, uh, a piece of paper to help you dream. I I likened it to the North Star. It's more like a compass. You could call it a life compass that you begin working through. And now today, what I want to do is describe some adventure busters that every man has to wrestle with that will keep him from dreaming and experiencing the adventure God has for him. Uh, But before I do, I I want to just answer a few questions that came up last week, so this is in a way of clarification. Uh, First, what I gave you on that piece of paper, or I want to remind you, is just a draft. It's something that's going to change over time. It's something you'll continue to work on throughout your life. So I want you to write in pencil. And if you've written in pen, I've got more sheets I can give you. So you shouldn't have any problem there. But it's something that you kind of fill out in pencil, and you'll review it throughout this year. You'll rework it. You'll erase. Uh, You'll change things. In fact, you'll do that over a lifetime. As I've taught this, I've changed mine consistently over my life, over the past 20 years, is that dream begins to clarify and begins to materialize. And secondly, the questions that I gave you, uh, well, there's a little confusion or you may feel a little confusion about them because they seem to overlap at times. For instance, one of the questions is, before I die, I want to do something. So what is it that you want to do? What are the things you want to do? But another question I said, before I die, I want to uh, enjoy something. Now, do and enjoy kind of sound like the same thing, don't they? But, but they are different. When I say do, I'm talking about things you want to accomplish. Uh, they're goals you, you have set. Now, in other words, you might say, before I die, I want to experience that noble cause you've been talking about. I don't have any idea what that is, but I'd like to experience it. So you write down... I want to experience. I want to. Before I die, I want to find the noble cause I can give my life to. That's what you write down. So it's something that you want to accomplish to do. Now, or you might write down: uh, Before I die, I want to learn to fly. That's an accomplishment. You want it, so you write down: I'm going to take uh, pilot's lessons and get my pilot's license. Those are things you want to accomplish. Now, the word enjoy is really talking about things you want to experience. In other words, you, you don't want to just fly a plane. You want the experience of jumping out of a plane. So you're right down there. Well, I would like to learn to skydive or have that experience of skydiving, jumping out of a plane. and That's part of your adventure. So let, let me just clarify each of the categories for you. Before I die, I want to, do, to want to be, that's personal development. Secondly, before I die, I want to do, that's some kind of accomplishment. Third, before I die, I want to have, that's some kind of possession. And before I die, I want to help, that's something you want to do for somebody else. It's focused on others. Before I die, I want to enjoy. That's an experience you want to have. And before I die, I want to leave. Now, that could be memories. It, it could be uh, the, what you want to deposit in the life of other people, the kind of uh, person you want people to remember you as that contributes to their character Um, but you want to leave this in the lives of others before you die. So the be, do, have, help, enjoy, leave uh, kind of help you um, define those more succinctly. So when you finish, uh, you want to be able to say, these are the dreams that are worth passionately pursuing with my life. In each of those categories, you ought to have at least one thing, but you could have three, four five things listed there. So you look back over the past, say, 20 years from now or 30 years from now, and you look back over the past 30 years, you can conclude, well, I lived a good life. That was a life worth living. Uh, I lived that life, and I've done it with no regrets. So the more you work on this, the time you spend, the clearer the vision becomes. It begins to materialize in front of you. Suddenly, you see things you couldn't see before. In fact, did you know Proverbs 29 speaks of um, this life compass? It says it succinctly. It says, without a vision, people perish. Now, that word perish means out of control. In other words, uh, you become driven by the events of life rather than scripting your future in a noble direction, and this project I've given you to work on throughout this year on that sheet of paper is really a place you can capture the dream that you want to see fulfilled, a way you can uh, well script your life so you accomplish exactly what you want to accomplish, what you think God wants you to accomplish in your life. Now with that, uh, I, I, want, I want to say in a way of broad strokes, there are two obstacles in every man's adventure. And I want to cover those this morning. And the two obstacles will undermine and undercut the adventure for every man, if he's not careful. In fact, Hebrews 12.1 speaks of these two obstacles. So what I'd like to do is look at the adventure through the lens of Hebrews 12.1. So you'll see it on the screen. It begins this way. Therefore since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Now, when the author of Hebrews talks about a great cloud of witnesses, he's not talking about a crowd of people looking at your life. No, you're looking at it the wrong way. The great cloud of witnesses are those who've gone before us, who've lived the adventure the way God intended it to be lived. In other words, their, their lives are evidence of the fun and the depth of life you can have by living the adventure God has for you. There are examples for us. So in light of these who have gone before us, in light of their example to us, then he continues. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race, the race is metaphor for life, this life that is set before us. Now, if you look at that verse, can you see the two obstacles? I mean, and they're, they're fairly clear. The first one I would describe this way, it's wrongheadedness that slows us down. And that comes from that word, wait. Now, now the word wait in the Greek text, that's the original language the New Testament was written in, is a Greek word that describes what one, runners would use in preparations for a race. They would strap weights to their legs, to their ankles, maybe even to their arms, and they would work out with those weights attached to them, and those weights allowed them to strengthen their muscles. Then when it came time to compete, they would take the weights off, and if you've ever done that in training, you you realize that you feel freer, you feel lighter, you feel faster. That's what weight is referring to. That's the, the kind of picture that's going on here. Uh, So whatever keeps you from running to your full potential would be the weight, you could say. So there are things in life that we intentionally, that that don't intentionally just slow us down. Uh, They don't purposely redirect us, but they end up holding us back, and you tend to see them at the end of life as as you look back on it, and you go, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done this thing. So what are the weights that hold a man back? That's the question. What are the weights? Well, I want to give you a few. One might be, well, ignorance. I brought weights just to kind of illustrate. Now, uh, some men just don't know any better. They pursue things and they haven't thought through where it's going to end up. Uh, They're they're ignorant. In fact, the question or the comment I get over and over again by men who go through uh, our band of brothers is, man, I... I wish I would known this 30 years ago. My life would have been completely different. So men can just be ignorant, and it's a weight that weighs you down. Another weight is stubbornness. I mean, this is where a man refused to admit that he's wrong. Um, Life's not going the way he wants it to, but he keeps plowing ahead. He's not going to admit he's made a mistake. He's stubborn, and that stubbornness can hold a man back and keep him from moving forward and keep his life from being what he wants it to be and what God wants it to be. Another weight is foolishness. I mean, this is a person who keeps doing the same thing over and over again, uh, but he's expecting different results. But he's pushing himself harder and harder, and he keeps wondering why. Life has turned out so poorly, which means that he's a fool, the Scriptures describe. And in his life is characterized by foolishness. And then there's pride. Pride can weigh men down. I mean, pride is probably the thing most men wrestle with. They think they can do it on their own. They don't need the help of others. Uh, it's not necessarily something we ponder and we think about, but we think, because I'm a man, I should know better. So I'm not going to ask for help. I'm not going to find other people to give me input in my life. I'm not going to put a board of directors into my life, because I just ought to know better because I'm a man. But who said you should know better? Every man needs to be a lifelong learner. And, And so these four weights... They end up weighing us down. They keep us from accomplishing what we want. There's pride, foolishness, stubbornness, ignorance. They weigh us down, so we're running the race, and, well, people are getting ahead of us. I mean, they seem to be passing us. We can't understand why, but we just can't keep up. Sometimes it's not because we're intentionally doing something wrong, but it's because we're hanging on to things we haven't let go of, they're the weights that men tend to carry that result in wrongheadedness. Now, secondly, you need to focus on that word sin. And I call that wrongdoing that holds us back. The author says sin is something that, notice, easily ensnares us. Now, that word ensnare, you ought to picture a fly caught in a, spider's web. That's the picture that word is, is supposed to describe. Now, sin's not a popular word these days, but there are things that are wrong and white. Things are black and white. And these are not unintentional weights that hold us down, but these are intentional things we do that hold us back. I mean, it could be unresolved issues in your life from the past. I'm talking about things that you've done wrong, but you've never admitted it. You've refused to admit it. No one knows about it. And you know they're wrong, but you've never admitted it. And that will leave a wound as you move forward in life. And that wound uh, can be devastating in a man's life. On the other hand, there are things that you know are wrong, but you've decided you're going to do them anyway. I mean, maybe you can't stop doing it, so it's an addiction. Or maybe you won't stop, so it's willful. You're just going to do it no matter what. So you refuse to stop, and but you know it's wrong. And for a moment it seems like you might be getting away with it, but eventually, eventually, it undermines your life and it undercuts the adventure God has for you. So Hebrews identifies these two major obstacles. Weights that hold you down, sinful patterns that hold you back, and it may feel like you're getting ahead following these two shortcuts to life, but they end up weighing you down and tangling you up, and you never get to the objective you want to get to. Now, I say that because there are four results of being weighed down and tangled up. Let me give them to you. I'll mention them briefly. Uh, The first regarding the great adventure is that if you're weighed down and tangled up, you're going to have less of the adventure. You're going to have less of it. In my early days, I competed in the high jump. I was pretty good. And then I remember one meet, our hurdler pulled up a lane. So the coach looked at me, thought, you can high jump, you ought to be able to get over those hurdles and get out there and run the race. Well, I was, I was happy to try, but I'd never trained for hurdles. I, I had never done a whole lot of running, uh, but I got out there anyway. When the one, gun went off, I mean, I held my own to the first hurdle. I got over it, and then I started noticing the rest of the field began pulling away. Now, I was trying as hard as I could, but I couldn't make up the distance between me and the rest of the pack. Uh, I was falling further and further behind. Everyone was passing me, even though I was giving it all I got. And so they all reach the finish line before I reach the last hurdle. Now in track, that's embarrassing. In life, it's devastating to a man. I mean, you're trying as hard as you can and you're trying to make it, but your friends are just passing you by. I mean, life gets better for them. The adventure gets more exciting for them. But to you, it feels like, well, as they go by, you're running backwards. You're weighed down that... That weight and that sin, that's what it does, and you end up getting less out of life. Second result of being weighed down and tangled up is hard rebuilding. I mean, hard rebuilding is where you find yourself digging out rather than enjoying life. So you're digging out of life, the mistakes you made, rather than enjoying it. I mean, it's hard, say at middle age, say age 45, you look back on your life and it looks like the World Trade Center after the collapse. It's just one big pile of rubble. So you've got to focus on removing the rubble. You don't have time to focus on the adventure God has for you because of mistakes you made in the past, things you should have let go of, things you should have taken care of. And that's being weighed down and tangled up. It creates a catastrophic hole. And some men spend their whole life trying to rebuild the mistakes they made in the first half of life, And life feels heavy and confusing, and that's what hard rebuilding is talking about. Uh, Then it moves into bondage. You can see these kind of build on one another. Bondage, you feel trapped, you're stuck, you can't get out. Remember that phrase, I've fallen down, I can't get up? Well, that's you. I mean, you're in bondage, and then bondage moves to the last step, and that's despair, you're stuck, you can't get out. I mean, you wonder, is life Always going to be like this? It feels hopeless. It's the polar opposite of what God wants you to experience, but that's what happens when you're weighed down and tangled up by these things that encumber you. Now, that, that's kind of a broad overview uh, of the, the the race we're in, the path we're on. And what I want to do is give you some specifics. And those specifics are going to be five adventure busters And these five things can destroy the adventure in a man's life. It's going to be very specific. Now, I'm going to give you the first two today, and then I'm going to give you the next two next week, and the last one the final week. And I want to explore these first two adventures with you. And we'll start with the one that is really the most subtle. Men don't even know it's overtaken them, and I'd call it the double life. The double life. I'm talking about living a life of duplicity. Most men hear that and they say, well, that one's not me. But that's the problem. The double life is difficult to spot, it's difficult to put your finger on. Uh, The double life is subtle. I mean, it creeps in. Now, the opposite of duplicity would be integrity, which means everything is integrated. In other words, it's all tied together. Did you know a man, every man in this room, has three faces he wears simultaneously? There's the public face every man sees. There's the private face that you and a few friends see. And there's the personal face that only you see. It's the deepest part of you. It's who you are at the core. Now, the closer these three faces are knit together, the more integrity you have. In other words, the more integrated your life has become, and as a result, the healthier, more wholesome, and consistent your life is. On the other hand, the further apart these three faces, the further they are apart, the more hypocrisy that's in your life. You've become compartmentalized. And when a man's life becomes compartmentalized, uh, it's characterized by inconsistency. And when it's characterized by inconsistency, it leads to conflicts in life, conflicts with people and in circumstances. In fact, James, in the book that bears his name, he describes it, I think, as good as it could be described. He says, A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. All his ways. So I want a diagram for you what that looks like. So if you were put in the diagram... Uh, on the functional end of the diagram of the continuum, there's, that's the integrity end down here. On the dysfunctional end, well, that's the duplicity side of things. And there's a scale between the two. And so what's exactly on that scale? Well, I want to give you three ways to categorize that scale. On the functional end, you have stated values that are consistent with actual behavior. That's the functional end. In the middle, you have stated values that ebb and flow with actual behavior. And then on the opposite end, the dysfunctional end, you have stated values that are in conflict with behavior. So your life ends up somewhere on here. So how does that play out in life? Well, let's talk about marriage. If you're on the far right end of the spectrum, the functional end... Then you're living consistently by the values you say you live by, the ones you embrace, and uh, the and that consistency uh, leads in your marriage to health. It leads to health because what you say is what you do, uh, and it also leads to intimacy because. Uh, the more integrated your life is, the more consistent you are, the more trust builds in that relationship between you and your spouse, you and your kids. And when there's more trust in a relationship, it creates intimacy between you and your spouse. So, so if you are integrated with, your, with yourself and what you say is what you do, then you're living a more consistent life. And what your wife sees and hears, matches, what she sees you do. And that builds trust, and trust is the, really the foundation of building intimacy. On the other hand, if you're on the dysfunctional end, uh, end of that scale, uh, then your marriage is going to be shallow. You're living a double life, and that's going to create instability in your life. And in a woman, instability brings insecurity. And insecurity causes her to have to think about protecting herself, to rescue herself. And that brings about conflict that creates shallowness. It's just the natural flow of relationships. What about the area of children? If you're on the functional end, you have healthy children because they grew up with consistency. And as a result, you're going to be... They're going to be healthy in terms of their emotional life, their social life, their relational life. They grow up in a home that's integrated, and so you naturally have healthy children. On the other hand, a child grows up in a dysfunctional side. He's going to be wounded. Not long ago, a man was telling me about how he really admired and wanted to be just like his dad growing up. And then he said, I remember the day I learned about my dad's affair. And everything I knew about my dad just went crumbling down. His image collapsed into just a black hole in that one moment. Suddenly, he said, in a matter of minutes, my life felt unstable, non-integrated, compartmentalized. And the young man wasn't sure what to do with that. It creates dysfunction in a child's life. It just does. You see, children get wounded in dysfunctional, double-minded homes. You can count on it. Okay, what about the area of noble cause, let's say? So you're on the right end of uh, this continuum. Uh, And uh, on the right end, you want to make a difference in the lives of others. So because you live a life, an integrated life of integrity, then that noble cause is going to be enhanced. Whatever it might be that you're giving yourself to, it's going to be enhanced in your life. I mean, people say you do what you say you're going to do, and they not only enjoy that consistency, but because you follow through on the things you do, They want to join with you and help you accomplish that noble cause because they enjoy being around you. And so you end up getting people around you to accomplish the noble cause. On the other hand, that noble cause is undermined when your life doesn't have integrity. Some of you guys remember the name Ted Haggard. He was a pastor of the largest church in Colorado back when I was pastoring there. And he got involved in a male pop pro- with a male prostitute. Now the pastorate ought to be a noble cause. But it didn't feel too noble to old Ted Hagger And the reason is because of double mindedness and duplicity. It ended up destroying the adventure for him. He ended up having to leave his church and he spent he spent the last ten years trying to rebuild his life. No hope of the adventure God had for him. He's spending his life rebuilding. And and if you don't believe Ted Haggard, then just ask Ray Rice. Remember, he was the one that beat his girlfriend. Or or you can just ask Al Franken what life is like, or Roy Moore, or Robert Menendez. I mean, when there's duplicity in life, you can't experience the adventure God has for you. But when your spiritual life is on the functional end, uh, where there's integrity there's integration between what God says and what you do, then you live with a sense of blessing. I mean, if you live the way God desires you to live, then you need to know He desires to bless that life. He wants to encourage that life. He wants to blow a fresh wind into that life. Now, you could write over the functional end the word stable. Because this life is going, going to put that up there, stable. Hit the next slide. There we go. And you could write you could over the dysfunctional end, unstable. And that's exactly what James is telling us in that short little verse. So here's the question. Where do you find yourself on this continuum? Do you find yourself on the unstable end or the stable end? It it ought to give you some indication of maybe why you're not experiencing the adventure God has for you. And and, um, the more integrated you are, the better opportunity you have of experiencing the great adventure God has for you. The more, more compartmentalized you are, then that becomes weights and ropes that pull you down, that tie you back from making any progress. They hold you back for what God wants. By the way, the older you get, I mean, the subtler the double life is. I mean, there's not a dad in this room that didn't have the experience of correcting their son or daughter and saying, now, now, we don't do this. You don't do that. And then you hear that little voice in the back of your head saying, well, you but you do it. You do it all the time. It's subtle. It creeps into our lives the double standard, and before we realize it, our lives are compartmentalized, so I'd say beware of the double life. So, as we summarize, I could say there are three implications of this. First, the greater the separation between the public face and the private behavior, the smaller our capacity for adventure. And secondly, I'd say religious people often set themselves up for a double life. In other words, it's easy to go to church Sunday after Sunday and acknowledge the great truths of the faith, but stop fitting them into our lives. So we start performing uh, a kind of a religious function that brings about a toxicity to our lives. It was meant to uh, bring about honesty, authenticity, and openness. But when we cover up that with pious practice that we never live up to, it creates a compartmentalized life that leads to a toxicity in life. And you'll never experience the great adventure. And then finally, I mean, this one is just logical sense. Integrity is just a plain old healthy way to live. I mean, it simplifies life, it keeps life from getting too complicated. So the, the question is, how do we guard against uh, the double life, this duplicity? Well, first thing I think, every man needs to draw some conclusions about life. And the best way to draw conclusions about your life is to write them down as written convictions. Now, I know this goes opposite the way a man really wants to think. He didn't want to sit down and think it through and then write it down. But you need to sit down and ask, what do I believe about? And you just fill in the blank, whatever that blank is. What do I believe about that? So what do you believe about marriage? What do you believe about your role as husband in marriage? What do you believe about your, the, the role your wife has in marriage? What do you believe about fidelity in marriage? I mean, what do you believe about communication in marriage? You need to write that down because writing is exacting. You just can't say, oh, I just believe We better talk. You've got to get exacting with your words. Or what do you believe about parenting? What do you believe about your role as dad? Or what do you believe about your, your wife's role as mom? What do you believe about discipline, the value of team that's working together on raising these kids? I mean, what do you believe about spiritual instruction? about your kids being a gift from God. I mean, those are valid questions. And a friend of mine, I've mentioned it before, wrote a book called Real Family Values. He wrote this so that young men could use it to help articulate their values and figure them out. He, wants them, he wanted them to read this and then, craft, then begin crafting their own convictions. And by the way, in it, he, in the appendix, he includes uh, two men who've actually written their values down. And this is what I gave you as you came in. Uh, I want you to to have this so you could read it through and go, oh, that's exactly what Doug's talking about. I see. And you'll notice these two men took the time uh, to write out uh, their values in life as it pertains to family or as it uh, pertains to kids. And so I want you to take this and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. But you, do you know what most men do? Most men make up their convictions in the moment. And when men make up their convictions in the moment, those convictions, they become conveniences that simply justify their behavior. But real convictions, guys, they bring fresh air into a life and make you ask the question, how do I really want to live? I mean, does what I'm doing now match the way God wants me to live? Am I living consistently with that? And written convictions are healthy because they bring clarity to your life because writing is so exacting. My message giving on Sunday mornings took a giant leap forward when I began manuscripting what I was going to say because writing is exacting. I didn't just say, I'll get to that point somehow. I'll transition somehow. That's the beauty of writing. And secondly, the safeguard that, some, that you need is that you need friends who are you're accountable to. A man needs friends he's accountable accountable to. Now, I've mentioned this before. I think every man needs a personal board because life is a team sport, and without a team, you're not going to do well. So do you have a couple guys who know you and can advise you and warn you? Men like that become really lifelines in your life. And you need to name who those guys are. In fact, Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen speaks to that when it says, "...as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend." And in that same chapter in Proverbs, it says, "...faithful are the wounds of a friend." Both of those passages come out of Proverbs 27. And, and a real friend, he will tell you the truth, when you step out of line, when you step away from your convictions, when you're playing maybe toxic, toxic religious game, he'll let you know what he sees. He calls you on it. And a friend recognizes that duplicity can ruin the adventure for a man in his life. So he'll call you to consistency. Now, now the second adventure buster is this, and this entangles... More men than anything else. It's sexual shortcuts. And I know sex is a sensitive subject. In fact, it reminds me of old Doc Gordon. Um, Doc Gordon was a member of of Rotary Club, and on this particular week, they had a guest speaker that was going to come and speak. Uh, He was a sex therapist. But at the last second, he had to pull out, and he couldn't speak. So the president of Rotary went to old Doc Gordon and said, Hey, Doc, I really need your help. I need you to speak in Rotary. you know." And the sex therapist was going to speak on sex. That's why the guys are going to be there. So Doc said, Okay, I'll be glad to do it. And in a matter of a couple hours, he put his talk together. He did quite a good job, and the guys really liked it. Well, that evening, he went home. His wife said, Hey, sweetie, how was Rotary? And old Doc said, "Well, it, it, it was it was pretty good, uh, but the speaker canceled on us, and so they asked me to fill in." And she said, "Oh, really? Well, what'd you speak on?" Well, he didn't want to get into it, and so he said, "Oh, sailing." And that seemed to satisfy her. And they went on with dinner that evening and didn't come up again. Well, the next day, Doc Gordon's wife was in the grocery store, and a friend of hers approached her. Uh, And said, hey, hey, my husband said, man, your your husband did a great job with that talk. I mean, he really knows his stuff, if you know what I mean. And she winked at at her. And Doc Gordon's wife said, wow. You know, I never thought of him being that good at it. In fact, the first time he did it, his hat blew off. Second time, he threw up and he said, I'm never going to do it again. Now, we, we can laugh when it comes to sex, but it is a sensitive subject. And what I want you to know, here's what I want you to know about sex, is that sex is and should be a wonderful part of the great adventure. Maybe you've never thought of it that way, but did you know sex is actually a gift? Is God's gift to us. I mean, He thought it up. We tend to think Hugh Hefner must have thought it up. But God actually invented it. In fact, He's dedicated an entire book of His Bible uh, to sex. It's like a sex manual. It's the Song of Solomon. Some of you are thinking, I've got to read that Old Testament more often. Huh? Well, the book of Proverbs also speaks to sex. Uh, listen to what it says. It says, Rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving doe and a graceful deer Let her breath satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always in her love. Now, that's God's perspective on sex with your wife. We tend, as Christ followers, to not even talk about sex, and yet God invented it, and it's there for you to enjoy. And it's important to know, secondly, that great sex is the union of souls as well as the union of bodies. When you think about it logically, there's only so much surface area to a woman's body. So, sex has got to involve something more than just body-to-body contact. In fact, the scripture says that it's more than the uniting of two bodies. The scripture describes it as the uniting of two souls. And the greater the union of these two lives in trust and mutual pursuit, the greater the physical union in sexual relationship. Did you know that? It's not, I'm doing this to please myself. It's built um, on mutual pursuits and trust being built in your life. Now, that's what creates deeper and more significant experiences and exhilarating sex with your wife. It's because you're going deep in other areas. It's more than the uniting of two bodies. It's the union of souls and lives together. So you need to know that third, great sex has boundaries. And Paul put it this way, the church of Thessalonica. He said, each of you should know how to possess his own body in honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this manner. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man but God. Now, sex has boundaries. God set boundaries so that sex can be exhilarating. It can be the adventure God meant it to be. So number two says sex can also be a stumbling block to the great adventure. I mean, that probably doesn't surprise you. Guys, I see it all the time, men who think sex is going to give them life, but it doesn't. Many think Internet pornography is going to be where life is found, but it ends up being empty and hollow. It ends up producing a cheap thrill, and it just undercuts the very life that man really wants for himself. And rather than giving life, what it ends up doing is producing shame and guilt, regret, and it can run into addiction, it ruins families and reputations, and it robs you of what God intended rather than what you think it invests and it exhilarates. No, it destroys any investment in any exhilaration over time. Hey, listen to the warning Proverbs gives. This is rather eye-opening. The author of Proverbs says, With her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. Immediately, he went after her as an ox goes to slaughter, or a bird hastens to the snare. He did not know it would cost his life. Now, therefore, listen to me, my children. Do not let, th- let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for she has cast down many strong men. Wow, what a statement. She has cast down many strong men. So why do men falter when it comes to sex? Why do they screw up? Well, let me give you four reasons. They falter because of foolish, foolish fantasy that is ignorant of the consequences. That's one of the reasons they... Falter. They don't pay attention to the consequences. You know, I love to duck hunt. Uh, when I was in college, my buddy and I, Carlos Smith and I, went every weekend we could. And the thing I love about duck hunting is fooling the ducks. I mean, you end up having this plastic decoy. You have a number of them that you throw out in the water and you use a, a duck call... And you fool the ducks into thinking that a duck party is going on on the surface of the water. So you see a group of mallards going by, and you want to get their attention, so you give them a a call. (laughs) And, and, And one of them turns its head. He wants to know where that's coming from, and it begins to circle around. The other four or five follow. And they circle around. They're looking for where there's the duck party. So you may kind of shake your leg, cause a little disturbance in the water. They see that. Uh, and then you want to entice them to come in closer because you can't hit them that far out. So you kind of entice them maybe with a feeding call. And they they come in closer and they circle even closer. Then they spot the decoys on the surface of the water. And it's when they come in for the landing and they cup their wings Now, that's when you raise up and you fire. The only way that they can get away is they've got to hit the water in in order to fly out again. So you fire when they cup their wings. Now, the thing that's interesting about duck hunting is none of this is real. It's fake. It's a cheap imitation of life, what they're looking for. What do you think the IQ of a duck is? Two. Ain't to compare us to ducks, but there's a gal in the office whose blouse is always unbuttoned halfway down. (laughs) You start paying attention to her. Or there's that gal that always drops by your office and she is a flirt, but it makes you feel good. (laughs) And you feel good talking to her. You feel kind of like a man. You feel important. But I want to tell you, it's fake. It's not real. It's a cheap imitation of what real life is. And that's what you see described in that passage in Proverbs. Sadly, most men ignore the consequences until it's too late. I've talked to hundreds of men who've taken the bait, who've circled and tried to land, and if, and if you're not careful, you do that. You cup your wings and you get blown out of the water or out of the sky. The second way men falter is because of a deep need in men for emotional reassurance. Now this ensnares more men than any other because it appeals to a deep, intrinsic need. Men get entangled in wrong relationships because down deep inside you want to feel wanted. He doesn't feel wanted at home. He doesn't feel wanted by his wife. I mean, all he feels at home is more and more responsibility. But rather than focusing on the issue and fixing that with his wife, he runs to a moment of relief, a cheap fix. So this gal has nice things to say, and it makes you feel good. I mean, it makes you have a sense of importance, and she affirms you in a number of ways. it's not physical pleasure this man is chasing. It's affirmation. It's emotional assurance. It's that he wants to be okay. But in the long run, it just ends up creating further pain and distances this man further from his wife. I've talked to a lot of powerful men who are in powerful positions with tremendous responsibility. They take the bait. And you wonder, how could they be so good at what they do, be so smart and yet so stupid to take the bait? And those sexual encounters give them a moment of escape from the responsibilities they're feeling. That's what they're looking for, is that escape. And what they don't anticipate is it creates even more complex problems, greater burdens further down the line. Third, guys often fall off in time from boredom, from boredom. There's a story in the Bible about King David, and he had conquered his enemies, he'd established his kingdom, there was relative peace throughout his kingdom, so the second half of his life was pretty simple. So the Bible says at a time when men go out to war, well, King David, well, he stuck around the palace. He didn't have much to do. He finds himself wandering uh, up on the roof. He had no vision for the second l- half of life. Uh, there was no second half vision. And so, while he's up on the rooftop, he notices Bathsheba bathing down below. And and noticing began to lead to thinking about it, which began to lead to contacting her. And it developed into an affair. That developed into a cover up. That developed into murdering. Uriah, Bathsheba's wife, and David ends up in deep trouble, drugged down by this illicit affair that went way beyond what he thought it would. Sadly, most men find themselves understanding the depravity of an affair at the end of it. They don't understand it at the beginning but they have no vision pulling them to a nobler life. And then there's arrogance. Some guys feel like the rules don't apply to them. They apply to everyone else, so they can move in and out of relationships unscathed. That's what they think. But arrogance is such a fool. So what are the safeguards? Let me give you two quick safeguards for you young men. I mean, you're growing up in a a much different environment and world that I grew up in. There are less and less strict boundaries between men and women. In fact, research today reveals on TV they broadcast 20 explicit sexual situations every hour. Or you can hit a pornographic website in a matter of seconds, and you can see stuff that when I was younger we couldn't even imagine. And you can get to it immediately. Did you know it's estimated today that 70% of young men are addicted to pornography? 70%. They want to stop, but they can't. They keep making deals with themselves. They're not going to do it anymore, just this one last time, but they keep going back to it. That's 7 out of 10 men. So, here's the question. How can a young man live the great adventure and keep his life pure? It's going to take both. How does he do that? Well, that's the very question David answers in Psalm 119. In fact, in verse 9, he asks it this way. How can a young man cleanse his way? And then he gives the answer. By taking heed according to your word. So, what he's saying there is that for young men it's going to require faith. Now, I don't want that to sound like a trite answer. The psalmist says it's going to, re- or, or not the psalmist, but the writer of Proverbs says, or is the psalmist, who says it's going to require faith. But faith in what? It's faith in God's Word. So, if you're a young man, if you want to live life well in the first half, you're going to have to roll the dice and risk everything on what God's Word says by faith. then you're going to have to do that over and over again. You're going to risk it all on faith because the culture will always mislead you. The culture will pull you a different direction. So you get to middle age, and if you've lived by faith in the first half, as you look back over life, then you begin noticing the rubble of your friends' lives who didn't live by faith. And suddenly, this life you lived by faith is now substantiated by actual facts of what happened to this guy's life and that guy's life, and his life ended up a mess. I'm glad I'm not like him. So what you began by faith ends up being lived out by fact. In other words, you see examples of why it's true. And you end up being glad you lived the way you did. That's the way a young man has got to conduct his life in this day and age. Now, for the older guys... You need to make time to love and enjoy your wife. And you've got to circle that word time. One of the biggest enemies in marriage is lack of time. The other is rut of routine. Time and routine. I mean, after a while, you get into this routine of working. She's in the routine of her responsibilities. And you're just grinding it out, and you're both tired and exhausted. You're, you're not planning special things. You're not engaging in conversation with one another. And when you talk, it's just maintenance talk. So you've got to get away with your wife often and have fun. And if you do that regularly, and you do it consistently, then rarely does a man come to the end of his life and say, my marriage was terrible. No, he he has created an environment where a marriage can grow, and your marriage ends up being great over time. And your sex life, on top of that, ends up accelerating. In fact, some of you guys are old enough to remember uh, two quarterbacks that played in the NFL back when I was young. I mean, the first is Joe Namath. Remember, he played for the Jets. Second is Roger Staubach. Some of you are old enough to have watched him play. Others of you can just imagine uh, what they they were like. But they were both great. And uh, Roger Staubach was asked, By a reporter one day, it was Phyllis George on national television. She said this, Roger, how do you compare yourself to Joe Namath, who seems to have a different girl on his arm every night? Well, Roger thought for a moment, and then on national TV, he said this, Phyllis, I have no doubt that I'm as sexually active as Joe. The only difference is all of mine are with one woman. Did you hear his words? That's a man living the great adventure. But to have the great adventure, you've got to have a vision. And that vision has got to go beyond what you do, what you have, what you want to be, what you want to leave, what you want to experience. It's got to include a vision, not just what you want, but what you have to avoid. So those are two adventure busters that plague every man's life. I'm going to give you two more next week, and we'll end on the fifth one after that. Now, I do have, want to remind you to keep working on, go to the next screen. Next screen. You go, you go forward. Don't forget to keep working on your life compass. Spend some time maybe brainstorming, thinking about that. And uh, be sure and pick up one of these. Read it through. This is going to spur your thinking in the area of life and family. Um, and I think it will stimulate some thought. So enjoy your small group, guys. See you next week. We just got two more Tuesdays before Christmas break.